Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or you can all find us streaming online at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean, Yellow, and Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello. We're going to start off today with uh, some news coming out of Ireland. Uh, this comes to us from NPR. Uh, the Irish question Catholic identity after abuse report. Now, the abuse report in question is known as the Ryan Report. Uh, this is a new report in Ireland about the Catholic Church and sexual abuse. Yeah, the Ryan Report is named after the senior judge who is leading the investigation. The article Hmm. from NPR says that it found a shocking level of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse of children in the church's care throughout the 20th century. Which is saying a lot because I think at this point we're almost desensitized to the level of sexual abuse that's been going on with the Catholic clergy. So if it's a shocking level... We're talking a lot here. Well, yeah, it's it's another reminder. And this is especially a big problem in Ireland because there aren't a lot of opportunities for secular education. Uh, the article says that 150,000 children have passed through schools and orphanages run by Christian Brothers or the Sisters of Mercy and 16 other Catholic orders. One of the secular alternatives – Educate Together, which is parent-led network of non-denominational, multi-faith, multicultural schools, uh, they have such high enrollment now that a lot of people are trying to get into that program, can't actually do it. And, of course, Educate Together doesn't have high schools. They're kind of like charter schools here in America. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's much more expensive to run a high school. And so a lot of these kids, if they do get a good secular education, by the time they reach high school, they have to go back into a Catholic school. Right. Yeah, that's the thing that I thought was interesting other than the whole like, because like you said, it was you kind of expect the abuse reports with right. Catholicism, but most people focus on what is it about you know priests or the Catholic uh, uh, structure that that promotes the abuse. I think that what this this kind of gets into more is that, uh, about how a hegemony of one specific denomination mm. where you don't have s- separation of church and state, you know, yes. in many ways can promote not detecting this sort of thing, or like maybe an attitude of authoritarianism where people are afraid to question that uh, and. and because they run so many of the schools there, and it's so intertwined with where you, what alternative do you have other than the church? Right. In this article too, there's um, they speak to Michael O'Brien, who's a 72 year old former local politician and mayor, who um, was asked about his thoughts on the subject uh, of the abuse, and he tells this absolutely horrifying yeah, yeah. story it's about terrible. his own abuse about. Uh, he and, and the other boys being uh, left standing outside with no food or anything. Did you see the video of that too? No, no I didn't. Because that one guy came out of the woodwork that usually defends Catholics too to defend uh, the church there. Uh, the Bill um, Donahue, you know, he's taken on oh, yeah, yeah. Hitchens before about the Mother Teresa thing. And he just was like appalling where he was like, well, you know, it, it happened to a few people or, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't all sexual abuse. Some of it was just physical abuse. And yeah. I mean, he just kind of minimized the whole the whole thing, and, and and in comparison to this guy's like testimony, which right. is gut wrenching, you know, it just stands as yeah, like absurd. He, he, he talks about too how um, it, he says, referring to his wife, that woman will tell you how many times I jumped out of the bed at night with the sweat pumping out of me because I see these fellows at the end of the bed pulling me into the room to rape me. This is a seventy-two-year-old man. This yeah, is, we cool. can't say, well, you know. 
they get over it. They learn how to deal with it. This is something that he has been living with for his entire life. Yeah. Well, he said, you know, he got raped two days after being selected to be in an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Um, a quote from his testimony, you had seven barristers there questioning me, telling me that I was telling lies. And when I told him that I got raped on a Saturday, I got a merciful beating after it. And then the rapist came along the following morning and put Holy Communion in my mouth. And and this is this is anecdotal when we look at the entire problem. You know, this is one Obviously. one man's story, but um, but that, the Ryan that one story is enough. not just anecdotal. No, uh, absolutely, it, it reflects you know a, a pretty broad trend. And this has a lot of people in Ireland now debating. You know, should they have church-run schools? Right. You know, might this be a case for more separation of church and state? You know, the current situation right now is they have 56 schools, for example, for this Educate Together, a secular school system, but they have 3,000 schools that are run by the Catholic Church. This is why we have separation of church and state. Okay, maybe not this particular reason, but it's um, symptomatic of the kinds of things that happen. And, and, And not so much that it led to the abuse as it led to the abuse not being reported and not being able to do anything about the abuse. It makes it difficult to find other options. Yeah. I'm going to argue here for, though, that I think the Irish should have domination of kids. Without that, we wouldn't have Angela's ashes. Or, That's uh, true. We wouldn't drive uh, you know, um, people away from Ireland to write great works of fiction like James Joyce without the... That's the literary argument wow. for... Uh, that's uh, it's a stretch, but uh, if we yeah, if we if we secularize the schools, then Ireland would not put out any great art or music anymore. Luke, the Irish literary apologist, create, creative creativity comes out of pain, preferably uh, pain in the ass. Okay, now that is that is true. Um, that that most good art comes out of a place of pain. That's why we have the blues, you know. But I could, uh, I I'm not sure like, that's a very good. I could Good be leaving defense. my country now to recreate the smithy of my soul. No, I'll stay here because it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> also in the news, uh, the New York Times ran a great article just recently. Uh, June 16th, New York Times, new glimpses of life's puzzling origins. This article is a great response to a lot of Christian apologists. I think we mentioned uh, several shows back Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh D'Souza, of course, embraces the idea of evolution. But he doesn't believe that science will ever be able to account for uh, the biological origins of life to begin with. Right. Of course, when we're talking about the development of the cell and everything else, Darwinian mechanisms can't be used to explain that because you need genetic material, self-replicating molecules right. to even get the process of natural selection going. It's got to come from somewhere. So Dinesh D'Souza is fond of saying that For atheists who trust that science one day will be able to explain how prebiotic matter became the first living cell, he likes to call that atheism's god of the gaps. Well, this New York Times article shows just how many of those gaps that scientists are actually filling now. And it it highlights four different major discoveries. I'll just rattle off a few. One of the big questions is what, what could emerge first, the structure of the cell or genetic material within it. It seems like you really can't have one without the other. Chicken or the egg. Dr. Sostak of the Massachusetts General Hospital has been doing some research on this and has described a a way that simple fatty acids, the article says, the sort that are likely to have been around on primitive Earth will spontaneously form double-layered spheres, much like the double-layered membrane of today's living cells. And uh, it says, you know, these protocells will incorporate new fatty acids fed into the water and will actually eventually divide just like cells. Wow. John Sutherland, a chemist at the University of Manchester in England, did a report for Nature where he claims to have discovered a route for synthesizing nucleotides from prebiotic chemicals. So those basic building blocks of genetic material, he thinks there's a way to synthesize those. It kind of goes into chemistry then, and I and it just becomes Greek to me. And one other one, Dr. Joyce. Not Dr. Joyce Brothers? No. That's too bad. Not Dr. James Joyce, because I just mentioned him. Wow. Dr. Gary Joyce, he reported in the journal Science earlier this year, uh, that he had developed two RNA molecules that can promote each other's synthesis 
from four kinds of RNA nucleotides. He says, we finally have a molecule that's immortal, meaning one whose information can be passed on indefinitely. The system is not alive, he says, but it performs central functions of life like replication and adapting to new conditions. Wow. Science is way more awesome than the Bible. <laughs> all, all the time I debate with people, they're always saying, oh, you can't really def- – yes, Darwin defines how species spread and, and, and change, right. but you can't say how life began. It just – the religious people just seem to just give up and say, well, it'll never be solved. Therefore, it must be So just God. because it's difficult yeah. to solve something doesn't mean it's impossible yeah. to solve. And uh, you have uh, these people like you know slaving away in laboratories actually doing something about it. To try to it, it it's the worst with these ID proponents because – Where's the sudden lack of imagination? You, you, can, right. you can handle believing in a god and some of these very strange things that happen in scripture. But the idea that you know, we might be able to bridge that gap between mm-hmm. non-organic material and, 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 a, and a living creature, you know, that, that seems all that preposterous to them. Uh, it just yeah. really bothers me. So we're coming closer and closer to a complete explanation for life on earth. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't require a god. So it's natural to ask, you know, what are the implications of that? If we are fully natural beings, we are just a product of our environment and evolution like any other organism on this planet, doesn't that mean that we have a a strong kinship with all of life on Earth? We're physically related to all of life on Earth. We have a common ancestor with... Everything, plants and animals. I keep hearing Cosmos music in my head when he talks like that, (laughs) when he waxes philosophical on life. Well, nevertheless, I think a naturalistic worldview that doesn't see human beings in any sort of elevated state as somehow being superior than the rest of life really does prompt us to consider, you know, what are we doing to our environment? How are we engaging with all these different creatures on planet Earth and and what moral obligations do we have to the planet, to non-human animals? Actually, the issue of the uh, environment and the relationship between someone's worldview, religious worldview or lack thereof, uh, and the environment I think is an important topic because it, it, it has so many – you could argue about you know trivial effects of religion or irreligion, but I think this is one of the most – profound effects that's going to be around long after we're dead, and that is that what uh, what is our attitude towards things like uh, the nature and the planet and other organisms. And so worldview affects that. Somebody's view of why we're here and whether we're supposed to, whether we have a mandate to take care of it or we can exploit it is important. And so um, this is the debate often boils down to some key words here like uh, dominion or uh, creation care that uh, religious people often are at odds within their own theology as to Mm -hmm. do we have a mandate to rule, lord it over creation because God basically gave it to Adam uh, and dominion is the word that's often used for that. Or uh, they would also, now there's an increasing movement of environmental religious types like within Christianity to take care of things because God gave you a stewardship, uh, not dominion over something, but stewardship as in taking care of it. So it's either we're in charge, we can do what we want, or we have the burden of responsibility to take care of things because we have stewardship. Now, that's interesting because, you know, from our worldview, we would be, it's irrelevant, it's not transcendent. We should just take care of something or not based upon the consequences of it or whether it's... From know. a purely utilitarian perspective, even, just so, to yeah. say... So, so one of the meta questions is, do people like secularists like us, should we uh, extend a hand towards the new creation care movement people? Or is it basically like kind of like Sam Harris says, that the liberals actually provide uh, cover for the conservatives and that we should say, look, it's nice that you're an environmental... You have environmentalist attitudes, but you're still doing it for the wrong reasons because you think the Bible tells you to. Well, it was a secular critique of Christianity in particular in regards to ecological views that may have actually jump-started this Christian green movement. For example, the article published in Science way back in 1967 by Lynn White, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. White's thesis was interesting that he he's saying that actually our Judeo-Christian heritage uh, might have contributed to a exploitation of the planet. And a lot of the, the um, religious worldviews with things like I mentioned with the, you know, the dominion over the planet or simply a, a separation 
uh, in the metaphor of creation, there's a separation of God versus nature or man versus nature. That that actually contributes to, in our Western uh, mentality, a separation where we could, you know, nature is just a big resource that we can exploit. Or we're not of this world. We're just here for a while, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, so why take mm-hmm. care of it? Yep. White says in that article, man named all the animals, thus establishing his dominance over them. God planned all this explicitly for man's benefit and rule. No item in the physical creation had any other purpose save to serve man's purposes. And although man's body is made of clay, he is not simply part of nature. He is made from God's image. And earlier in the article, he says human ecology is deeply conditioned by beliefs about our nature and our destiny, that is, by religion. So it's hard not to see a connection between a religious conception of humanity that sees us as as somehow privileged in a special status and the way that we've exploited our environment to serve our own purposes without paying enough care and attention to the damage we might be wreaking. Well, the question that this prompts for me, and and I don't know if either of you will have an answer, if anyone has an answer, but what about Eastern religions who don't have a book telling them that they have dominion over creation and that they are a special creation and all that sort of thing. What is uh, how do they respond to the environment and ha- how have they historically? I mean, are are they as big a mess as as Western cultures? Yeah, I think that's hard to gauge because a lot of Eastern religions, the current situation, a lot of nations in the East are the result of colonialism. I mean, they had right. They had – It's hard to separate <clears throat> out. Uh, yeah. They had yeah. the they industrial the revolution just dropped in their right. laps. So. Yeah. Or, or maybe they didn't have the industrialization to do anything about the environment. And so we kind of romanticize it by saying, oh, look at those countries. They live in harmony with nature when in fact they don't right. have like a spewing smokestack. There. Right. Do you right. guys remember back – do you remember the old Joseph Campbell, Bill Moyers videos, The Power of Myth, where they were discussing this topic mm. about whether the myth – uh, creation myths led to that. And there was these kind of like, he's like, well, in the East, they didn't have the separation in the Garden of Eden. You know, he's talking about mythology right, and right. stuff. And then they showed, the images they showed were like a Buddhist temple in Japan where the monk, you know, is sitting in a garden of sand with a where, the, where there's sublimity, the, the human handiwork was blended in with nature. It was kind of made yeah. to show, oh, look, in the East there, and the, and the monk patted the fish as he fed them. Right, and, and, and you, and you have could see this in a lot of Taoist and, and you know, Chinese art in general yeah. where, where the human Little subjects... Little tiny humans, yeah. big, big mountains and things right, like right, that. Right, right, right. And you, yeah, have, you just have the Buddha the sitting under a context. tree and, and connecting himself to nature as opposed to Adam and Eve who yeah. are or the, victims. the Buddha earth-witnessing posture. Yeah, exactly. If you see a lot of Buddhist statues, his hand is touching the ground uh, with, with the earth as his witness to his his claim to enlightenment. And, and so, yeah, I, I think Eastern religions do seem to be closer to nature. But again, you know, China is polluting. Yeah, yeah I was going to yeah. say, yeah. Or, and or, that's, yeah. that's my point, because they just had industrialization India, just dropped yeah. into their lap. Yes. Uh, and who knows how it would have developed. Leave the, leave the Zen gardens of Japan and go step into Tokyo and talk right. about how, you know. But then that may be the the... Um, Judeo-Christian-influenced Western culture imposing itself on the Eastern. Yeah, okay. So uh, it's all it's all just a, White, a jumble there. Yeah, White in his article doesn't mention much about Eastern religions uh, so much as he does pagan animism. Ah. And uh, mentions how in a lot of animistic cultures in antiquity, there was some sort of spirit in every tree, every spring, right. every hill. And people had to Norse uh, cultures and everything right, else. Right. Yeah. Right. They would have certain ceremonies whenever they dam a, a brook or mine a mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, or they wanted to. Yeah. They wanted to appease the spirits of nature. And White says, by destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. And so when I was trying to look at prepare for this, I was trying to look at some of the empirical work that actually would give an answer to is it is there a link between Christianity and uh, exploiting the environment or viewing it as utilitarian versus the the kind of rhetoric of, no, it promotes creation care. Mm-hmm. And what I found it was that it's very complicated. You have to separate out all these factors. Are we talking about the theology itself as somebody's, you know, a devout Christian? Or are we talking about the 
political orientation of that person sure. versus other things like their belief of evolution versus creationism, uh, their their view of like whether their religion is fundamentalist versus liberal. And so a lot of the studies actually find contradictory effects. So, for example, a lot of the research I found shows that church attendance is actually positively related to pro-environmental attitudes. Oh. And so one of the explanations offered for that is because churches have things like recycling drives mm-hmm. or cleaning right. this up okay. or like, you know, part, you know, adopt a highway. But but the yeah. theology is re- negatively related to environmentalism, especially, again, the uh, the fundamentalist thing. So, again, we're left with if you could separate out people that were religious uh, and attended church, but were not fundamentalists in that sense or they weren't politically conservative, if somehow you could tease those apart, then, yes, religion would not have a negative impact on someone's environmental attitudes. On the other hand, most people, that, you know, at least at this time, that are more religious and they do attend church are more conservative. Mm-hmm. And right. they are, and there's a, a large proportion of fun, growing proportion of fundamentalists. And they do tend to have more negative views about the environment or care less about it. And, and are we talking, when we're talking about the religious fundamentalist, is it a dominion thing or are we talking about the extreme end of the world brings Jesus back kind of mentality. Yeah, that's yet another, I mean, or, or is there... Yeah, that's yet another variable like dispensationalism. That, right. That's one thing that some people looked at particularly in studies where they looked at if you have an attitude that it's all going to end soon, yeah. so let's just burn it all up. God's you know, like, going to consume the world in fire yeah, at the end of the... Might as well use the, up what we can while we can. You heard that during the election with Palin talking about like drill baby drill stuff with the with the oil yeah. and that she's up there in Alaska sitting on all this oil and that a lot of those people you know are these end times dispensationalists and they would say you know once in a while they'd get an interview with somebody that would say we're not going to be here it's all going to be you know raptured up anyway so why not use the resources that God gave us so yeah there mm-hmm. is a link between that particular type of theology and negative environmental attitudes right. but again you're left with it is that the religion aspect or is there just they're imposing their political conservatism onto the religion well the good thing is that there's a very visible and growing movement of evangelicals who are bucking that earlier trend they mm-hmm. are trying to argue no uh, it's not that environmentalism conflicts with the doctrines of Christianity. They feel the biblical imperative uh, inclines them to be good stewards of the environment. In January of 2006, the National Association of Evangelicals issued a statement saying, global warming is not a consensus issue and our love for the creator and respect for his creation does not require us to take a position. But several uh, evangelicals didn't want to put their name to that statement Hmm. and feeling that it really was an issue. In February of 2006, then a group of 86 evangelical Christian leaders began the Evangelical Climate Initiative. Didn't the head of uh, one of those associations basically get a withdrawal campaign, letter-writing campaign against him because he took a liberal position on the environment. I'm blanking on his name now, but he was like a head of one of those National Association of Evangelicals and he broke ranks with him on this environmental issue and some of the conservatives like the Baptist, uh, yeah, Richard the, Land guy. Yeah, the guy who was, he was going to be the head of the National and they made him like association yeah, of evangelicals, and uh, he didn't he didn't get it because there was a when Ted Haggard was booted out, yeah. they needed a new, huh. and yeah, it was his environmental advocacy that was the criteria they used against right. him. So this is in the first issues where the, you you know you used to see conservative evangelicals voting as a block with abortion, gays, anti global warming, and this was the issue I think one of the first issues that split that, where they agreed with him on everything else except the environment and right. global warming. Yeah. Believe it or not, Pat Robertson has changed his view on this. What? Yeah. He really? used to be very critical of this evangelical climate initiative. Sure. Uh, he said they were just full of far-left environmentalists and everything. Uh-huh. Um, but on 2006 on 700 Club, he said, they're making a convert out of me. We really do need to address the burning of fossil fuels. If we are contributing to the destruction of this planet, we need to do something about it. So wow. in, in other words, you know, th- these are not all like liberal left-wing Christians. There's a lot of conservative, very conservative, even fundamentalist Christians who are coming on board with this. Yeah, it's not the fringe of the evangelicals even. If Pat Robertson is, is yeah. starting to convert, that's – Although some of them are still – they might admit – they seem to be at the tail end of it though. So now you'd have to be the, – the cranks are increasingly marginalized that say there isn't global warming. What they do tend right. to say though is, OK, maybe there is and maybe even human fossil fuel burning contributes to it. But 
the solution to it is not to you know reduce that because it would have negative economic impacts. What's that thing that you sent, Jeremy? The Cornwall. Yes, the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship. This uh, the Cornwall Alliance is a group that formed probably to be a counter to this evangelical climate initiative. And I encourage people to check out their website. It's very slick and deceptive. Oh, yeah. yeah. it's It's got the logo is what? It's like a uh, dandelion with uh, blowing in the wind. Yeah, uh, they have little uh, music, tinkly New Age music with yeah, shots of mountains. Pictures and of mount- and mountains, landscapes. Very majestic. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, bill themselves as being an environmental organization. If you look at all the headlines in their sidebar, though... <laughs> It seems like all they seem to be concerned about is global warming denialism. Yeah, and it's particularly egregious, I thought, because there were, a lot of it was couched under like anti-poverty stuff. Like if you have you know, these measures like a carbon tax or whatever like that, it's going to hurt primarily low-income people and the, and the poor. Mm-hmm. You know, and I kept yeah. thinking in my mind, oh, but you know, the poor who are living next to the factories uh, and, and right. you know, the people right. on coastlines are going to be swamped when Manhattan's under three feet of water. They won't be affected right, at all. Right, right. You know, when uh, global famine or, results as our climate changes and, and regular harvest cycles are are thrown into disarray. Um, the poor will go swimming. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, that's what a lot of the UN reports was, is finding is that the, the global warming, at least in the next century or so, is not going to really affect as much of the rich people or the rich nations as no. it is. They're living in penthouses. Yeah. And they can always buy their way out of something. Yep. Well, the Cornwall people believe that global warming is just a fraud. Uh, on their Declaration on Environmental Stewardship, They have a lot of flowery language about how important it is for us to be good stewards and tend God's creation, but it's pretty clear that what they're really for is free market economies, not regulating industry, and they are most definitely for promoting the idea that humans are indeed superior. They are elevated over all the rest of the creation. Under the list of their concerns, uh, number one, they say many people mistakenly view humans as principally consumers and polluters rather than producers and stewards and ignore our potential as bearers of God's image to add to the earth's abundance. The tendency among some to oppose economic progress in the name of environmental stewardship is often sadly self-defeating. They include all their unfounded or undue concerns they believe about global warming, overpopulation, and rampant species loss. So they're environmentalists, but they don't want to do anything about any of those. No, no, no. And under their aspirations, at the end of this statement, almost all of it has to do with free economies. Uh, Number one, we aspire to a world in which human beings care wisely and humbly for all creatures, first and foremost, their fellow human beings, Ah. recognizing their proper place in the created order. So in other words, we need to take care of the animals and everything, but, you know, don't prevent somebody from logging a forest where the spotted owl lives if it's going to take away jobs from the most important creation man. And, and it, I'm assuming that's where that line of logic With these goes. arguments, it's always, you know, the human community starting with me is yeah. kind of is the, oh, my, is the yeah my own little uh, yep. tribe and or whatever number four we aspire to a world in which liberty as a condition of moral action is preferred over government initiated management of the environment as a means to common goals so uh, they don't expect any sort of government regulation because yeah, that would be no, mandatory coming. it's kind of yeah. like bush's policy of well we need environmental regulations so let's have the industry write up their own you know uh, and and not hold their feet to the yeah, fire self regulation is great I guess the question is, should we, those people of us who don't think that there's a transcendental mandate to do things, should we make common cause with religious people who also happen to share our views in the environment? Right. Or should we be critical of them for, you know, because they're, if you base your views on scripture, then you're also liable to a bunch of other things too. Well, I, I don't think we can avoid making common cause because this is a very important issue. It's something that needs to be dealt with now. And it's not something that we can do on our own. No, absolutely not. And so if there are Christians who say, look, it's it's part of my religion to take good care of the earth and they identify themselves as, as pro-environment, then why shouldn't we make common well, cause? Is it part of their religion? Well, that is the other side. good question. The other side is I I do think while this is politically expedient, at least theologically, this is a whitewash. I I don't really think that the Bible supports this strong environmental view that they're they're articulating. 
it all centers around this idea of stewardship, right? Right. Stewardship of the earth. That's what I was always taught. In Genesis, the verses talk about dominion. Right. They're taking this idea of stewardship from a New Testament context that has nothing to do with the environment or the creation. The idea of stewardship uh, refers to the gospel and to the church. Uh, the idea is a, a steward was somebody who was a slave or a servant in the household and that would be given certain powers by their master to take care of the daily affairs of the house. While the master is away? Right. Yeah. Paul mentioned this in reference to tending the gospel, taking care of the church. What they do is they take that stewardship notion and then they graft it onto these Old Testament verses which talk about dominion. Mm. And so you'll have many Christian apologists arguing against White's article and others saying, you know, it's, it's, it's not true that the Bible is anti-environmentalist. Uh, you know, from the very first decree of creation, man was told to take care and tend the garden. Well, let's take a look at some of those verses and what they actually say. You know, the most famous ones are in Genesis, in verse 126, and let them have dominion, them meaning humans, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now, that word dominion, if you look it up in Strong's Concordance, it's rada. It means to tread down, to subjugate, to prevail against, to rule over. Mm. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue is also translated uh, tread down, conquer, subjugate, violate, and bring into bondage. Violate? Wow. Those are words that would quicken the heart of any fundamentalist. uh, (laughs) Yes, I do. With the authoritarian implications of dominating, crushing. Absolutely. Absolutely. People sometimes make a big deal that before the flood, people appear to be in the Bible vegetarian. They don't appear to be eating meat. The the meat uh, is uh, from the trees. The meat of the trees, I believe, is uh, in Genesis. What they don't quickly mention is right after the flood with Noah, uh, God blesses Noah and his family. And in Genesis 9, verses 1 through 4, you have the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground in all flesh of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Now, that's not like, you know, carefully tend the earth, take care of the creatures, no. and you can have a few of them to eat. It's <laughs> they're going to be terrified of you because you are going to dominate and subjugate them. And it's, you know, it's understood that this is God's order. Okay, two thoughts on that. First off, I got to say the things that creep have it coming. Okay, Um, And secondly, that's really terrible advice. If someone takes that literally, hey, you know what? All the animals are scared of you. Do what you want. Good luck with a bear. I'm not sure that's what they God has dominion over the sheep bears because he has them all little children. uh, That's right. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's true, as some green Christians will argue, that the Old Testament laws do seem to factor in some concern for the animals. So Leviticus tells people how to carefully take care of their fields. Leviticus also commands people to help distressed farm animals. Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4, a very famous verse, uh, do not muzzle the ox while it treads the grain, basically saying, look, you know, if this, if this animal is doing your work for you, you should let it share in the food. And then, of course, farm animals are also allowed to rest on the Sabbath as well as everybody else. People will say, look, that's clear sign that there was concern for animal welfare and the environment in the Old Testament. I'm not so sure that's not just concern over your property. Yeah, it's just utilitarian. Right, exactly. Yeah. For an agricultural society, those are good things to practice. It's not concerned because of how the animal might feel about it or their their, their suffering. It's concerned over, well, their their, – you know, not going to be as productive or that we should let them eat because they might, you know, fertilize it or something, right. or, you know, do something yeah. to benefit. And when you get to the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul gives a very clear interpretation uh, in his mind what he felt that verse meant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians nine, chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? 
It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of a share of the crop. And he's basically using this verse as a justification for pastors and ministers being able to profit off of their ministry. Yeah, it's utilitarian. Uh, So Paul is flat out denying that that verse had any sort of regard for animals implied. And even Jesus, when he's talking about God taking care of the birds of the field and and everything else, always quickly follows up those references with, you are so much more important than Yeah, it's a a metaphor. He's just using them for a metaphorical reason. So I don't really buy that the Bible actually supports a strong ecological view. The root of it does seem to be this view that human beings are superior. The creation exists for us. That being said, if Christians want to read the Bible in such a way as to promote environmentalism, more power to you, okay? Yeah. I mean, and it goes the same for all of the social issues in the Bible that I think they're wrong on. I think um, a stronger case could be made in the Bible about being anti-gay than being pro-gay. But if they, you know, if Christians want to read it and say... right. Then great. I totally agree. I think we need to get behind the green Christianity movement. I think we need to reach across the aisle. I just don't want to be silent while a theological whitewash is going on. Well, no, we don't. uh, We don't have texts that we abide to as much being atheists or being seculars. But one thing that we do have, though, is that often the cornerstone of a lot of people's views of their atheism, or at least integrated with that, is evolution. And that is, is that, right. uh, and I think that to be critical of people like us, I think I would throw out there too, does a view of evolution, the, f- the fact of evolution, behoove us to change our behavior in some ways as well? And that is specifically, I guess what I'm referring to here is in animal rights and uh, vegetarianism. Yeah. yeah. A- and actually, I'm, I'm myself a pescatarian, which means I eat seafood. Do you eat pests? I do. Um, Pesky people? And for me, it is an evolutionary argument, or at least that's what I use to justify it. And my cutoff point is anything with shoulders. If you have shoulders, I won't eat you. So like if, um, a, if a nerd, you could eat a nerd then? N- n- well, yeah. To me, it used to be knees, and then I was informed by um, Greg Forbes that shrimp have knees, yeah. and I, I didn't <laughs> want to give up shrimp, so... Even whales have vestigal legs. So. It, well, yeah. Um, so so I made it shoulders because I don't like things that have have shoulders. Um, well, well th- this, is, this is a good point because no matter how green Christianity can find itself, it's still going to preserve that idea that man is at the pinnacle of the creation, yes. that they are somehow There's different. man and then every other species yeah. a consistent, humankind. A consistent naturalism, unguided evolution, removes any chance of letting that type of argument for human superiority fly. But you still it have to acknowledge... It puts us on the level of, of the rest of the biological world. Well, yes, but we have pants, okay? We do have um, a more advanced culture or a differently advanced culture if you want to be incredibly PC. We are more responsible it's for summer. the environment. It's summer and I would rather be wearing a skirt. Well, so, okay, probably, but or? we have the ability to choose whether or not to wear pants, and it's not, hey, we're special. We are different, if not biologically, certainly socially and mentally okay, than that, other that, living creatures. That is one legitimate difference. We do have a much higher intelligence mm-hmm. um, language. We have tools, of a course. A certain type of intelligence. I was going to say, right. we're, we're much worse at some things than, yeah. than very basic animals it's, are. It's different in degree, not different in kind to what cortex. some non-human right. animals have. Uh, And Peter Singer has been really good about pointing out the flaw in that kind of argument Mm -hmm. to say that because we have greater intelligence, human beings have such a greater intrinsic moral value than non-human animals. Uh, What he brings up, and it seems like a pretty logical point to me, is look at the way we treat human beings that may be seriously handicapped. Or small children. They don't differ in intelligence realistically to a lot of other mammals, and yet we don't use their lower degree of intelligence to deny them moral concern. Or to eat them. Yes. If intelligence isn't a good criteria, it's not even one that we use. Mm -hmm. 
in the way we treat our fellow human beings, why do we treat intelligence as important in the way we treat animals? Yeah, I mean, I think Seeger's big, big uh, book, Animal Liberation, was was that the early 70s or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, he asked a lot of these arguments about retarded people or children or, or chimpanzees that made people very uncomfortable. And right. in fact, he who was, you know, tired as being, a, you, you know, like a Nazi or eugenicist or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I think that it, it's hard to escape his logic. Yeah. Right. Uh, w- saying that, that we can eat animals because we're human and they're animals it has no different from saying that we can make slaves of black people because we're white and they're black. Okay, but if if we're all... Animals, then, if there's no no difference, then why aren't we um, feeding all of our pet? Well, I guess it, we shouldn't have pets if you're um, on the, the I call extreme. them companions. Companion, companion animals. Why aren't we feeding them strictly vegetarian diets? Why don't we judge um, animals that eat other animals as being morally wrong? Well, um, shouldn't it? Let me doesn't clarify. that have to go back it's to not- us, too? It's not that there aren't any differences between human beings and non-human animals. The point is what are the morally significant differences? In Peter Singer's utilitarian view of ethics, and it's one that I would support, moral concern, being included in the moral community, begins with one prerequisite. That is sentience, the ability to experience pain or pleasure. Sure. As soon as you have a being that has that ability, we immediately have to factor them into our moral deliberations. Right. It's not that all animals and all humans must be treated equally. There may be relevant differences that would prompt us to treat right. them differently according to uh, what their capacities are, just as we do with you know severely mentally handicapped people. We're not going to you know, issue them a driver's license if they're not capable of, of having it, you know, and, and other concerns like that. And like we shouldn't dress pets. We would do the same. That's morally wrong. We would do the same with we would do the same with non-human animals. But the point is if sentience means that that animal now has interests, it also means that their interests must be factored in to our moral calculations. One statement Peter Singer is fond of making is that in suffering at least – Animals are are equal. So an argument for vegetarianism that he would use is, you know, a straightforward utilitarian argument. Look at what the common person in the first world, you know, in in a Western society like America, Mm -hmm. what do we actually gain out of eating a nice steak? Count up what, what, what we benefit from. You know, we, we, it tastes good. You're getting protein. You're You're getting getting protein. Vital nutrients. But protein that you could probably get from other sources. Absolutely, It's not always – red meat especially is not always the most healthy thing right. to have in your diet. So really what we could chuck it up to is – oh, is that a pun? Chuck it up? Yeah, that's a chuck roast. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what it comes down anyway, to you is – Anyway, slice it. No. It, <laughs> <laughs> what it comes down to is what we get out of eating meat is that it tastes good. Now compare this to the interests of the animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of these animals are uh, – they they live their lives out in industrialized farming settings uh, where they're packed together. They're doped up on antibiotics so that disease doesn't spread. They live generally miserable lives and then are slaughtered. Weigh all the interests that animal has in not suffering compared to the very small interest we have of, in mm, pleasing tasty. our palates. Yeah. On a utilitarian calculus, if you're really going to treat suffering and sentience as real, um, it's completely obvious that that's a bad moral calculation. Right. Yeah. I even like when I when I crave burgers or pepperoni or something like that, that I've developed a mental image that I use of you know when I'm salivating of how good it would taste to just uh, have a nice juicy burger. Is how would I like it if I'm picturing my cat in a slaughterhouse? Right. How would my cat feel sitting there like on a killing floor or whatever, like living his life like that or like, you know, getting diced up or whatever? And I lose my appetite. And, and that's right what away. made me become a vegetarian. And yeah, I, I do eat seafood and that's partly utilitarian because of dietary concerns in my household and need to uh, um, need to deal with all that. And also because um, I'm a hypocrite. But um, but it, it was that. It was – I saw a couple of documentaries about um, – meatpacking industry and about how how chickens are raised and all of that and anytime i i smell 
barbecue chicken, which used to be one of my favorites, and I start to water at the mouth. I I think of you know those chickens who can't even stand because they're no. they're so overfed, yeah. and that that kind of well, kills what, the. What I like about what I like about Peter Singer's approach too is he's aware that a lot of people are going to cling very strongly to to meat eating. That yes. it's it's very natural. It comes by very naturally for us, uh, and. Sometimes, depending on who he's talking to, he'll frame his moral challenge just very simply. Nothing more as, look, if you are going to eat meat, you have a responsibility to know where that meat comes from, to know what the animals uh, that you're going into the grocery market and dropping a few dollars to buy, you have a moral responsibility to know what they go through. And he'll just leave it there. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that's a pretty yeah. clever argument. We, we make fun a lot of, of religious people often for not bowing to evidence, for sticking with their gut feeling like I want to feel special because my life, you know, I'm afraid of dying. And we say, no, logic, logic, evidence, evidence. This is one example, I think, where where we can kind of get a taste for how they feel with, with as a person who believes in evolution or finds those things yep. irrefutable. And yet we like our burgers and steaks. There are certain uh, there are certain uh, implications of having a gradation of species. Even Darwin realized this, I think, in his writings that yes, in fact, there is no big difference between us and the animals. And that has implications. So anytime a atheist yep. who's not a vegetarian wants to imagine how it feels like to be a Christian and, and to have people argue with all this rational evidence and expect them to give up an emotional thing. The evolution has certain implications there, and that is that there is no big difference between you and that burger you just ate. Right. You know, yeah. Uh, or where are you going to draw the line between chimps and your cat are good, but the cow and the chicken are edible? Yeah. Why? That's and, easy. And I, Shoulders. You know, I could admit that I I fall into this category too. I I was after reading Peter Singer's book Animal Liberation back in college, I was kind of shocked into a vegan lifestyle <laughs> for. For uh, for a couple of months, and then decided it was much easier to be a vegetarian, and followed through on that for about a year. Uh, but I quite quickly caved to the temptation. It was just so. I mean, I was raised on chicken and steak, yeah. you know, every other night, and uh, um, yeah, it's it's. I, I'm for, I'm in a position right now, and have been for the past couple of years, where. Intellectually, I see where the argument is pointing me. As far as my behavior is involved, I just push it off to the side. And I, I don't have a justification for myself. A high it's proportion just, of our friends and relatives are, are veggies because they share our worldview. And that's one of the topics that people talk about whenever we have cookouts and barbecues yeah. is the differences between – I don't know what the statistic is. I should actually do a study on that of like the, the people who are who go the whole – who walk the whole walk you know, with the vegan and the whatever. Yeah. And the people who are carnivores, that's one of the things that people talk about it, is – and, and it's uncomfortable. It is yeah, a lot of objections that I've heard I, I don't think are good. And in fact, um, the, the whole reason why I got in, interested in this conversation to begin with was at the Free Thought Association. Um, the founder of the group, Jeff Seaver, is a vegan. And I got into a, a pretty lengthy argument with him one night at the pub where I was using all the wrong arguments. Uh-huh. And uh, I was really surprised to get my ass handed to me intellectually um, because I didn't think – I thought vegetarianism was emotionally driven. Yeah. And uh, I would use arguments like, well, we have canine teeth, right? Don't we? We have these pointy teeth that are uh, for eating meat. We naturally evolved on a, on a fat, protein-rich diet. We needed that yes, for our brains did. to evolve and everything else. And what he threw back at me is, you know, naturalistic fallacy. That's a naturalistic fallacy. Yeah. Um, just because it's natural for us to eat meat, well, it's natural for rape to happen. Yes. Infanticide is natural. A, a lot of these things are natural, but, but that doesn't mean that they are moral. Right. If you have the ability to behave differently and that would result in a world with less suffering – now, see, Singer's, I think, his, wasn't his more recent book called The Expanding Circle, where he argues that a lot of the, this is on a continuum, a lot of, a lot of our rights discussions with slavery, yeah. women's rights, and now we're the circle of people we include under organisms that have rights will now start to include animals as right. well. Right. He's taking into account there the evolutionary origins of, of our or, own moral sensibility. Mm-hmm. You know, we evolved to be protective of kin. 
And the same arguments 200 years ago, we would have said, well, it's clear that slaves are different from us. Look at they're black, we're right. white, whatever like right. that. And, they, and it could be the same way that people 200 years from now will talk about ours. Well, how could they think that a chimpanzee is totally different just because they're a chimp? Right. So just as, just as we've expanded the circle to include people who are of a different race or nationality, you know, we will hopefully expand that circle to include the the rest of sentient creatures. And actually, I didn't know this, but uh, Darwin himself, uh, there's a book out, uh, recently called Darwin's Sacred Cause, I think, where he, it talks about how his uh, view, how his abolitionism and his abhorrence of slavery actually mm-hmm. was a was a uh, not a result of his evolutionary views, but actually guided that came hand in hand with them. That he, w- he his he viewed his theory, and he had there's if you read in the Voyage of the Beagle, he saw like slaves being mistreated and had a very visceral reaction. Boy, it was I involved, did not know about that. Yeah, and then, and so that that actually he was looking for a mechanism that would then prove, look, you can't treat other people like we're this all, because we're yeah. all related. Wow, you know, and wow. and so that they would say that one of the reasons that he developed his his uh, evolutionary views was because it went along with that view of saying there's a continuum, not a Dichotomy. Yeah. And of course, England was was well ahead of the United States With when it came to. Yeah. I- well, they didn't have cotton, so. Yeah. Well, and they didn't have to have a civil war to get rid of it. Um, they just needed William Wilberforce and a bunch of ministers, really. Well, bringing this around full circle, cases for vegetarianism are not all about concern for animal welfare. This also ties in with with the broader issue of taking care of the environment, also. Yeah, so the 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 um, uh, arguments for morality and suffering and all that are one thing, but also like we talked about before, like global warming uh, and fossil fuels. So if you know, if you've read it, if you're familiar with like Michael Pollan's books, like the uh, Omnivore's Dilemma and 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 those sorts of things, he talks about how actual how much fuel and cropland it takes to actually produce meat because all the corn and the stuff that's fed to animals feed is basically produced through the burning of fuels, fertilizer, transportation, irrigation pumps, and, and whatnot. Right. And actually, we're better off environmentally. Uh, I think I saw the statistics somewhere that if, if people gave up meat for a certain period of time, it actually has the equivalent effect on the environment as like giving up driving for that year. I'm not sure the exact oh. parameters, but it's once you take into account yeah. the entire fossil fuel burning of the food chain yeah. and cropland allocation, uh, if people became vegetarians uh, or reduced their, especially the, like their red meat intake, that the um, that the environment benefits from that. But think of yeah. all the jobs we would lose in the meat packing industry. Hey, I, I'm from Nebraska, the beef state. All the oh, corn, yeah. all the corn that I worked on when I was young in the fields is not for human consumption. That was for feed. Really? Yeah. yeah. We did hybrids. We would like detassel corn to get specific seed varieties. But that was a lot of it was just dumped into the. That's the other cow. argument. How much of our food uh, actually goes? directly to the people who need it directly to eat and how much of it just goes to feeding livestock. It's an incredibly mm-hmm. inefficient way yeah, uh, to, to combined, feed populations. The, the confined feeding operations when you drive through states like that and you see like, you know, cows for miles penned in there, you know, uh, that that is all the corn that you see is basically dumped into those cows wow. rather than being eaten by humans. Right. And so the, the whole mom and pop family farm where there's a variety of different crops uh, some of which was used for feed, other which goes to the humans, and then you would take milk and eggs. That sort of thing is becoming less and less prevalent with industrial agriculture. So, yeah, one of the other mo- arguments, which I would argue is also a moral argument, is uh, to uh, vegetarianism uh, and animal rights is, is entwined with things like uh, in feeding the, the poor and protecting the planet. Well, one to think about. And now another edition of Stranger Than Fiction. Dial up with teeth, no Sabbath desecration. This story comes to us from the United Press International for ultra-Orthodox Jews. Of course, there's a number of things that you cannot do on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath goes from, from sundown on Friday until um, sundown on Saturday. And these include not dialing a telephone. Now, I'm not sure what scriptural passage backs up the idea that you shouldn't uh, be able to dial a telephone on the Sabbath, but the Orthodox Jews say that it is there because this is a problem in our in our modern age, particularly for people working emergency services because if they can't dial their phone, they can't contact people, they can't get back up, they can't let people know where they are, what they need, etc., 
Aren't they already working if they're out on the emergency service? Well, and that's – see, but that's OK because it does not um, violate the Sabbath to save lives. Oh. You can work if you're saving lives. So because so they're in emergency by services – extension, wouldn't the cell phone be a tool in saving the life in that situation? That is absolutely what, what I would think. But um, but they weren't so sure. Area. Yes. So um, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Helperin – Uh, issued a new set of rules involving the use of a specially designed case that prevents phones from being shut down accidentally so that because you can't turn on your phone. Um, So it needs to be on the whole time over the Sabbath. Yes. And to confirm response to dispatch, the article says, workers are permitted to hold a small metal pin. They're not dialing with their fingers. They're holding a small metal pin between their teeth. And press the buttons that way. So they can oh, oh, hold the right. phone. They can dial the phone, but they cannot do it with their finger. They have to do it with a pin in their teeth. Should we do an experiment on how much more work it would take to <laughs> dial see, the phone with your Did you see Religious when, when yeah, Bill Maher yes. was interviewing the dude who made all these appliances for people like uh, – and the, the phone dialing one was it was always dialing numbers, but it was simply removing the dowel that deli- uh, on specific numbers that allowed it to dial things. Yeah. And somehow so that was different because it was by default. you were pressing a button. No, you were making – the, the current call. flow. You, you were, were just simply saying, hey, you can dial that number if you want, and that's not work. The, the <sighs> lengths they go to to avoid doing work or turning on lights. Uh, Jeremy, you were talking about the uh, – Oh, yeah. Well, there was – A related story. Yeah. In Great Britain, there were there was an Orthodox Jewish couple who they actually sued the landlord of their apartment complex because they had an automatic hallway light. The, yeah. the light would – Turn off to save energy. It was motion sensor. Yeah, and when people would walk into the hall, the motion sensor would uh, would trigger the lights. Well, they felt that during the Sabbath, this imprisoned them within the walls of their house because if they were to open the door and set off the light, they would be creating fire, which is the which is uh, the law. Yeah, and uh, and. So yeah, they they felt that they were actually being imprisoned by in their own home because of this automatic light. These things in the hallway. are so remarkable to me because a obviously there's no biblical reference to electricity. Okay, uh, a, a light does not involve fire whatsoever. Okay, well, but they're willing to, to burn extend... the coal to generate the electricity, though. Uh, okay. Um, but that's already happening regardless of whether or not they turned on the, the switch or it's not. Extra um, so, the, so the – you know, you should not ignite fire. Fire was used to provide heat and light. So they extend that out to modern um, heat and light. But they don't they, – they go to all of that extra work rather than just saying Bible doesn't account for this. So It's the yeah. principle. It's so the principle it's, of work. Though. Well, that's, that's the orthodox. And I mean, how is that work? Reformed – if you guys find this funny, you should read uh, A.J. Jacobs' uh, Year of Living Biblically. Or oh, yes. I, I saw him do a, a presentation. We had obey all these little picayune rules. And it's just really funny the way he describes like the, the ways he's trying to get out of doing stuff with his beard. And like he, he can't yeah. sit on chairs that a woman is menstruating and sat on. So his, he comes home one day and his wife, you know, he's he's like uh, sitting down. She's like, I wouldn't sit there because she's pissed off because he's doing this project. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. She, and he's like, how about here? No, I sat on all the chairs in the house. So he's like in the floor. Eventually, he built a little hut that he's huddled in in his, his house because it said so in the Bible. Did he just, go to the neighboring village and find all the, the heathens and stone them? Yeah, no, see, well, he, he, said did. he carried a pocket of uh, uh, pebbles in his pocket and oh, some yeah, guy like, right. asked him what his deal was with his dress and everything. He's like, oh, I'm supposed to do this and I actually, I need to stone adultery and the old guy's like, well, I committed adultery. He's like, sorry, I have to do this and he's like, I'm going to with rocks. So, I mean, it's really, and there were some things that he, he didn't do that involved, you know, killing and that sort of thing. But he, for his he, kid, he got a styrofoam rod so he could still beat him with a rod but it was covered with styrofoam which apparently his child <laughs> thought was funny. It was yeah. that sounds like some of the solutions these <laughs> orthodox <laughs> and it people is. are coming and, up and with. it's you know it's funny and it's silly but he's absolutely living the same kind of lifestyle that these yeah. people would do. And, and they too pick and choose they don't right. they're not stoning adulterers but they won't go out into their hallway because in uh, motion sensor light will go on and that somehow yeah, violates yeah, the it's law clear. it's so, also the Jains too who like you know can't can't kill anything so they like screen out 
masks so that they don't inhale insects or they don't trod upon the ground because they might smash microbes and things like that. Yeah. So eventually you're like just like laying there absorbing, you know, trying not to kill bacteria in your skin. You know, laying on a mattress so that the fleas will have somewhere to go. Unbelievable religion, the lengths people will go Religion just seems to. like a hassle. It makes it so much harder. D- talk about uh, a defense against Pascal's wager. What do you lose <laughs> by believing in God? Everything. Hallway Turning lights. on the lights you during the weekend. Hallway lights. You, you can't lose. shave. You can't nothing. So you can't even sit in a, in a chair. Oy vey is what I have to say to that. Oy vey. Uh I want to end with a real quick addition to our props list. Um, Mythbusters is one of my very favorite TV shows. Ah, um, me too. Uh, f- absolutely fantastic. It's – OK. Their science is maybe not perfect science, but it's fun. OK? It, well, no, but it does teach some good principles about being skeptical. And they, exactly. They blow stuff up. Yeah. Back when I substitute taught, I used to bring a Mythbusters DVD with me oh, every really? time I went into school. So if I didn't have lesson oh, plans great. or something, I'd just pop it in and the kids loved watching I, it. I keep trying to find a way to justify using it in my mythology class, <laughs> but it just doesn't work. Yeah, not quite the myths they're talking uh, about. Anyway, um, Adam Savage, uh, one of the uh, original Mythbusters, is on Twitter. And um, on June 14th, he posted a a tweet um, about the Creation Museum. He said um, with a link to a BBC article about the Creation Museum and said, Creation Museum makes me mad. If you think the world is only 6,000 years old, please stop following me. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, bravo to that, A, because the celebrity, especially celebrity Twitter, uh, um, the, the name of the game is get as many people to follow you as possible so that they're engaged with you. Oh, does he? Yeah, yeah, he's got like a million. You know, get get people to follow you. They're engaged in what you're doing. Then they're more likely to watch your show, listen to your radio program, read your books, etc. And he's inviting people, um, young earth creationists, to bugger off. Um, and then a little while later, after responses he had gotten, would that be profanity in the UK? Because we do have U- UK listeners. Uh, maybe we're not on the radio in the UK, so that's true. Um, uh, he, he said uh, later to those unfollowing me, because apparently a bunch of people started unfollowing him Good. because they did believe in a six thousand year old Earth. Um, you're misusing the word prejudice. They were claiming that he was prejudice against creationists. Oh, and don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Oh. See ya. Now, see, I've, I have <laughs> that. Love I was, this man. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was reading about them in Skeptic Magazine, and I think I recall somebody asking them, why don't they take on the type of myths that are, you know, like you were talking about, like religious right. things. And I That's really not their shtick, though. It's not. They're, they're, they're they do science. things that they can do testable, but I mean, yeah. but creationism is something that's testable. You could do creationism yeah, with science. Have you watched the show? Yeah, I've watched the show, it, mainly for the red-haired chick. <laughs> Who, who's giving birth soon? It, it doesn't really fit in with the type. I mean, they're they're debunking urban legends, yeah. and they're using their technical expertise to. Well, to why do can't that. they do like skeptical inquire Joe Nickel type stuff? That's like I you know, know. Well, I guess statues they could. And, and frankly, and I think intercessory prayer. You could test that. Myth busted. I think the the young Earth <laughs> the tumor's still there. Six thousand year old <laughs> Earth is too easy a myth. To debunk. But I mean, why, why you, they, you literally just it's not if he has people following. To, there are people uh, who were with him with the uh, statues, everything uh, else, or with with a you know cement things and the dummies, whatever like that. But weren't with yeah. him on the Earth yeah. being ten thousand years old. Incidentally, I can't tell you how many times I'm on a Christian blog or website and see them linking to like Snopes.com. Yeah, so unbelievable. There's like a lot of uh, premature. Uh, Snopes.com is a website that debunks urban legends and that sort yeah. of thing. Oh. So there's a there's a lot of like um, pre-skeptical religious people out there uh, who would probably really appreciate a little more training yeah. in skepticism and critical well, thinking. But functionally not going speaking, to. I think people are atheists ninety percent of the time. You know, when it comes to urban legends and that sort of thing, then they're more likely to believe the natural. Listic explanation as provided on MythBusters than they are to say. Uh, I don't well, know if at, the well, stats back you up. Well, uh, when given when given the people who people who watch MythBusters are going to go, okay, yeah, that's silly. We're not we're not going to believe that. But then they're going to say, oh, but science is totally wrong about the age of the Earth. Um, so functionally, they are they're skeptical the rest of the time when it comes to 
trivial things. I, I, I don't know. I mean, when you look at the values of people who believe in things like astrology and other things, I think one of the reasons why Mythbusters and Snopes.com are so accessible is because they're not debunking anything that would get no core into beliefs. metaphysics or yeah. anything else. Uh, so it's safe ground uh, for for skepticism to take place. So they can pretend to be skeptics. Well, anyways. Anyway, so bravo, Adam Savage, for uh, being a celebrity defending science. Um, so that's going to do it for us this week. Until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. Also, find us on our website, doubtcast.org. Or find us on Facebook um, and do us a favor and write us a write us a nice review on iTunes. We haven't gotten many of those recently, so we need a few more. That's always a big help for us. I need my iTunes review fix. <laughs> it makes me feel special. Uh, so anyway, until then, uh, we'll see you next time. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.